so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we apparently just talk about how terrible men are because men won't just stop being terrible. Um, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks running the show today and with me as always is Karen Peterson. Hello. And Kristen Lopez is we presume in the bag or possibly stalking Jeremy Irons or doing something like that. This week she ran away with Pedro Pascal. So Oh, that's that right. Happened. That's right. I forgot about that. So, yeah. <laughs> so we we do miss Kristen, but she will be back uh, in August, hopefully, unless she just like elopes with Pedro Pascal, in which case... You know, it's anyone's guess. I mean, he is BFFs with Oscar Isaac, so I'm imagining the three of them are just going to run away together. I there, I'm imagining things that are a little disturbing right now. Um, <laughs> so, just a reminder: we are running a "What's in the Bag" contest. We are not certain whether Kristen will, in fact, be in the bag, but if that is your guess, please let us know. Um, just go onto our Twitter and retweet or respond to our uh, tweets about what's in the bag with your guess, and you'll be entered into the contest, and you can win what is in the bag. Um, and also just a reminder that we are on Patreon, and we do depend upon um, donations and support, and you also get fun things like pins and extra content, and also the joy of getting to support women in film criticism. So you know you want to do that, please. And also thank you very much to our patrons who are already on there. So today, where do we want to start? Do we want to start with, with some of the garbage people? There's a lot of just, like, shit this this week. There is. You know, I like getting garbage people out of the way so that we just can forget about them, but... All right, well, let's let's start with um, a garbage person who has been around for a very, very long time and might actually, finally, maybe, possibly be punished. Fingers crossed. For the things that he has definitely done. There is pretty much no question that this guy is, is... a predator in so many different ways. R. Kelly has been indicted on new federal charges in Illinois and New York. He's been indicted on sex trafficking. Um, he was now, see, I thought that this was actually just a repeat of, um, some of the other things that he has been arrested for. His last arrest was five months ago. He was released on bail, um, for, uh, sexual abuse charges in Illinois he was arrested again on uh, Thursday night when it, it looks like the, uh, amazingly enough, near his home at the Trump Tower in Chicago. So I think that that <laughs> says a lot. I, you know, it's, it's like, it's almost too, it's not ironic anymore. I don't even know what that is. No, it's um, just, it's just how it is now. Uh, so it, the counts are federal charges. 
um, including, uh, let's see, child pornography, sexual abuse, uh, four counts of sexual exploitation of children, one count of a conspiracy to defraud the United States, uh, and five counts of coercing or enticing a minor into sexual activity. I mean, these are really serious crimes, and he is being indicted in both, uh, if, on federal charges in both Illinois and New York. So this is like... This is serious. This has the potential to, you know, hopefully actually put R. Kelly in prison and at least remove him from the public eye. What do you think about this, Karen? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank God. Like, this is just it. I really hope that he gets convicted. I think in this modern era that we're in, there's a very strong likelihood that he will be. I was reading the other day that um, with the charges that he's faced with, just on these federal charges, not even including the other ones that he's already waiting for trial on, uh, he's looking at a minimum of 15 years if he gets convicted. So, I mean, this is bad for him. This is really bad. And that means this is very good for the rest of us. The fact that he gets arrested on federal sex trafficking charges near Trump Tower in the same week that we find out about Epstein is a little weird, but um, <laughs> I'm not going to say that's who his conspirator is, but, you know, I mean, everybody ties together, right? I mean, you do kind of wonder, because there's been all this conversation about Epstein and about, you know, who he's going to, as, as that case proceeds, what this is going to mean for all of the many very powerful men who have been involved with him in various capacities over the years, including Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um... And so that's been sort of an open question, and people have been wondering about that. So it, it, is, it is interesting that R. Kelly is, you know, finally being brought up on federal charges. And, I mean, we, we have to remember these kinds of charges and accusations against R. Kelly have been around for years. They've been around. Yeah, since the 90s. Yeah. And so this has taken, you know, at least 20 years to get to a point where this man is actually being arrested and indicted and... Uh, on, on very credible and very serious charges. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just hope that this is finally what gets him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it needs to because he has been dropped by his label. He's been dropped by his agents. He's been dropped by all these people. But if they can't get him convicted, then he's going to end up getting those people back or at least some version of them where people are going to be like, well, I guess we'll still work with you because for whatever reason... People still like him. I I don't know. I Even before I ever knew anything about him, whenever I would hear his voice, just something about him just creeped me out. Even though, I mean, sure, he's talented, but I just have never felt right about him. I don't know what it is. Well, I guess I do know what it is. I have pretty good instincts for this, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I for one am glad to see him go. He needs yeah. to be, he needs to be where he cannot hurt people anymore. Yeah, and, and hopefully this will also scare and put the fear of God into some of the other very high-profile men who've behaved like this. Because you, R. Kelly is not the only one. He's one of the worst. Mm -hmm. But he's not the only one. Oh, yeah. Well, we know. you know what I, I've been thinking about this week is the fact that we haven't heard from Rowan Farrow in a while. And he has said that he was working on something big. And I know he wasn't working on this one because he would have been out with a big story but it's like ooh, is this leading towards something else from him who else is about to go down yeah well it will be interesting so fuck you r kelly we hope that you go to jail for a very long time <laughs> <laughs>
Bye bye. <laughs> so I let's switch slightly to not garbage people, but kind of crappy stuff that is going on right now. Um, look who's talking oh, is getting yeah. a reboot. And, you know, so everyone's being like, okay, fine, look who's talking is getting a reboot. They're rebooting everything, basically. But um, if those who don't know, Look Who's Talking uh, was originally directed by Amy Heckerling, and this new Look Who's Talking is going to de- is going to be directed by a dude. Jeremy Gerlich is set to write and direct, uh, and his major hit, his major claim to fame, is The Wedding Singer, which was in like or The Wedding Ringer. I'm sorry. Yeah, not The Wedding Singer. <laughs> I looked at that and I was like, that was the wedding singer? And I was like, no, no, that can't be right. The wedding ringer. So not, so like the budget version, basically. Right. Um, so this, I mean, I think that this is only really interesting and important. I, I don't give a shit about a, a reboot of Look Who's Talking. I enjoy the first film. It, it seems like it's kind of a passe idea. I don't know why they're going to do it again. But again, we've got, this original film um, made by a female director with those, you know, should be praised for its focus on female experience in a pregnancy that is unintended uh, and kind of the choices that she makes about her relationships um, after that. And it's being rebooted and going to be directed and written by a man. And this is just, yet another in the long line of things that we are tired of and that we thought that Hollywood was maybe beginning to learn from, but apparently not. So uh, what are your feelings about this, Karen? Oh, you know my feelings for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As soon as I saw this, I was just like, what the fuck? You know, I'm so tired of this. And every, although I will say (laughs) this time when I pointed it out on Twitter, I didn't get the, the blowback, but Every time before this that one of these these situations has happened, either a sequel or a remake, where the first one was done by a woman and then the next one's done by a man, every time I've pointed it out, dudes come out and say, oh, no, that doesn't happen. You're thinking of one or two rare cases. And I'm like, no, it happens all the damn time. And luckily, this time when I said that, nobody, nobody called me out and said I was wrong because... I think now they realize that I'm right because I point this out whenever I see it. But, um, but yeah, I I haven't watched the original in years, but I still love it. I remember seeing it in the theater a couple of times, and and one of the things that does make it special, like you already pointed out, is the fact that this is about a woman. It's a very of its time movie because it's about a woman who is in an affair with a married man, and she gets pregnant and she has to figure out how to face this this unplanned pregnancy by herself in a world where that wasn't that still wasn't something that was just normal and and celebrated it was very you know that was a very big deal at the time and uh and then it's it's her dealing with that but also just like going through her own emotional stuff this is a story that needed to be told by a woman and was and so to read to read this uh, outline or, you know, the synopsis of what the new director is planning on doing. And he's talking about how, like, he was inspired because of his own kids. He's a dad with four kids. And I'm just like, you're completely missing what the original movie's point really was. So I'm not interested in this. And I don't imagine, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be a completely new story with the same idea, but 
being told from a male perspective, regardless of who the parent is that is the focus of the movie, it's just, it's, it's another one of those things where it's like, you're just erasing those original ideas and what made that so special, unique and important at the time, you know, and, and this is, this is, you know, I agree that whenever a remake is coming, it doesn't erase the original movie, but it does mean that the next generation's not going to watch it. And that's where I just get really frustrated. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, I do love the, I love look who's talking. Um, I really enjoyed it back in the, it's one of, it was one of those films that I like kept on going back to. It was like a comfort movie almost. Yeah. Cause it's very funny and it's sweet and it has a happy ending. You know, you have all of that kind of niceness to it. And I have to say, John Travolta and Christy Alley are really charming together. Oh, they are movie. so charming together. Yes. Uh, it's kind of at there at an interesting point in both of their careers when they're both still like very interesting actors and everything. And I never knew because I was a kid when it came out and I, it was just something I didn't really pay attention to, but I never knew that it was, it was directed by a woman. Um, very similar to one of my favorite films as a child was <laughs> Wayne's world, which was also directed by a woman. And I've come to realize how many of those films from that, um, from that period of my growing up were actually made by women and from maybe if not necessarily directly from female perspectives, look who's talking is more from a female perspective. Wayne's world obviously is not. Um, but there's still that difference in, in having a woman directing or having a woman writing the script that just approaches these things in a slightly different way to the way that dudes do. And I mean, one of the quotes that Gerlich gave was that everyone can relate to babies. And that to me is just, um. it's just like, okay, I don't know what that means. Like, we, what? I, <laughs> like, I how, how am I to understand I that? I have questions, but I don't really care to ask them <laughs> of him. <laughs> exactly. And, and you do have to say, look who's, like, look who's talking to, which came out in 1990, was also directed by Amy Heckerling. Yeah. So for once, the, this was actually a franchise that was primarily helmed by a woman and directed by a woman. And it has its problems and everything, and the, definitely the films fall off in quality uh, after the first one, which is sort of to be expected. But it, it, it feels so insulting to just take, to not even appear to consider um, putting a female director in there to, to direct a film that is about having kids and about experiencing that. I mean, I, I don't know if this film is going to wind up approaching, um, you know, the whole pregnancy aspect of it, which is a large part of the original movie is like, it starts mm -hmm. with her getting pregnant. Yeah. Uh, and her having to deal with this asshole of a boyfriend who's, who's married and there are all kinds of issues that go along with that. Um, but yeah, it's it's depressing, and it's just sort of another in the long line of, of films that we've talked about numerous times uh, of men taking over franchises or concepts that were that were originated by women. Exactly, and I mean we do see this all the time. One of the things that gets me with this one is that I get the sense that this wasn't even something the studio was necessarily looking for. This this guy Gerlich, Gerlich, however you say it. He was just like, hey, I have a great idea. I want to make this movie. And they just kind of went, okay, done, you know? And it's like, did they even ever consider 
whether he was the right one for it or did they just let him because he was you know he came in with the idea and so they said sure you can direct that and the thing that gets me is if that's the case how often do they actually do that with women if a female director comes in and says hey we should make this movie and they say okay but we're gonna have this guy direct it you know no exactly um I, I was actually thinking about this the other day, just in terms of the film, the types of films that we tend to talk about as women's films. And so the types of films that for a very long time, women were allowed to direct or allowed to write. And they are films like, look who's talking the romantic comedies, basically mm-hmm. light, light movies. Um, but now it's, you know, we've reached a point where it's like men are allowed to direct women's films. Men are allowed to direct men's films women might get to direct quote men's films, but they have to fight for it and they have to constantly fight for it. And men still get to direct women's films. So there's still this inherent sexism that women, even though things are improving in Hollywood, women still seem to be an afterthought. Women creatives are an afterthought or they're used as, uh, as symbols, but the men are actually the ones that are trying to control things and the ones that are driving things. Yeah. Which <laughs> transitions very nicely into yet another thing that came out this week. Uh, Big Little Lies. This was a report that came out in IndieWire um, surrounding the Big Little Lies season two and the fact that creative control has basically been taken away from the director that they hired to do season two, Andrea Arnold. Um, who's you know a very well-known uh, filmmaker who did Fish Tank and most recently um, American Honey, and according to uh, according to the IndieWire article, a number of sources say that there was a shift in late 2018 where basically the show was taken away from Arnold and creative control was given back to the original season one director um, Jean-Marc Vallée. Uh, and the idea behind this, or the excuse behind this, was that they wanted the same visual style of season one to transfer over to season two, which in its own sense is understandable, but then of course you raise the question, why did you hire this fairly well-known and, and big-name female director if the whole intention was to, you know, was to simply let the, the original creative director redo everything that she did? Uh, this... According to the report, this sounds like that um, Arnold did not realize that this was going to happen, but that this was actually always part of the plan from uh, from the show's producer, David E. Kelly and um, and Valet, that they were always going to take away the creative control from her and that essentially he was going to redo a large portion of the series in order to quote, unify it with the original season. And this kind of feeds into some of the criticism that has been levied right now at uh, at Big Little Lies season two, that there's like weird cuts, there's odd um, movement between characters, there are odd directorial decisions that just don't make sense on screen. And some of the reason behind this might be that you, what you basically got is one director's vision then being sort of molded by another director it's it's a really really ugly thing uh that is going on right now so i i don't know i i don't watch big little lies but it seems like such a horrible thing to hire this big name female director for 
a show that is about women and that is focused on all of these different female characters. And then to just be like, oh, by the way, we're going to take away all of the creative control that you had over this show and just remake it in our own image. Yeah, I do watch the show. I've I've been actually pretty obsessed with it. And um, it's this is such a frustrating thing because I remember the first season was awesome. It was really well done. There were things though that I would have loved to have seen changed. Um, and I don't want to give anything away story-wise, but the way that the first season resolves, there was nothing that specifically built to the actual resolution to it. And I was very confused. I mean, not confused by what happened, but why it happened. And when I was talking to some of my friends afterwards, they said, oh, well, this whole, this whole thing is addressed in the book and it makes so much more sense in the book. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know why they didn't do that for the show then, because that would have been great. And so I really think part of it was just because it was this very talented male director, Jean-Marc Vallée, who just didn't, he didn't understand that by extracting this this one major part of the character development that it kind of just changed the meaning of the entire story. <laughs> um, but it was still really good and really compelling. And I really liked it. The first season when season two was happening, when they announced it, he went on record saying that he didn't think there should be a season two. The first season was based on one book. It was just a limited series they only intended to do that one. It was just, you know, 10 episodes telling this story from this book. And he was like, no, we shouldn't do it. And uh, they went ahead anyway. The The author of the book was just like, yeah, I can write more story. I can come up with more of where this goes. And, and you know, I mean, she's getting HBO money. Why would she say no to that, right? So when they hired Andrea Arnold, it was like, yes, awesome. They're going to have a woman tell the rest of the story or the next part of this story and hopefully correct some of those issues that happen in season one. And so as I've been watching this season, we've, we're five episodes in now and a lot of it I've been really into, but there have been some things where as I've been talking with friends about kind of our speculation about who certain characters are, what motivations are, where this is going, the way some people are talking to each other. I'm like, this still, this still feels just like season one. I don't see a difference between Valet and Arnold at all. And now I understand why. Somehow, even though he went all public about we shouldn't do a season two and I'm not going to be involved in it and he was busy with other projects, they still managed to bring him in. And that's so frustrating. I'm at this point now where I'm like, I'm hooked. I'm invested. I want to know what, where this goes. But at the same time, I'm like, fuck this. I'm pissed and I want to stop watching. But now I can't because they sucked me in. So I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's it's a weird, I mean, it's a weird situation. It basically sounds like that, that Arnold was brought in to fill a gap because Valet was shooting yeah. um, sharp objects. And then when he finished, Which it was wasn't like... very good, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I, I mean, I think some people argue with you about that, but I, maybe so. <laughs> uh, and then after he was finished, they were like, oh, okay, well, we got the original guy back and you're just kind of secondary. And so it's, at, at best, it's well, ugly. Go on. And to do that and not tell her, that's yeah. the thing. Like, to just do that behind her back. To do it is bad enough. But then to, to go and take everything, let her finish all that work, 
because she had the episodes locked. At least she thought they were locked. And then to go and just send them off and have them re-cut, re-edited, have things changed and not tell her that that was going to happen. I don't know at what point she found out, but she certainly didn't know this before she was done with her work. And that's just so mind-blowing that they would do that to her. And it's so angering. I'm pissed. I'm super pissed. Yesterday, um, I think it was April Wolf. She tweeted, and I had already been yeah. thinking of it, but I was like, I couldn't get to Twitter, so I hadn't <laughs> said it yet. But she was like, release the Arnold cut. And I was yeah. like, yes. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Because I do want to see it. Because, like, last week, there's this whole confrontation between Meryl Streep and Reese Witherspoon, which those two, as antagonists, are so funny. I never knew how much I needed that matchup. And they had released. I think it was Reese. Who is, this is what's also weird is Reese Witherspoon's a producer on the show, and so is Nicole Kidman. So I don't know if I don't know at what point they knew any of this was going on, but um, but she had released a picture during production, like a photo still of her throwing an ice cream cone at Meryl. Yeah, I saw those. <laughs> and I was like, every I was with everyone. We were waiting for that scene because that confrontation happened in last week's episode, and we were waiting for that ice cream throw and then it just cuts and we're like wait what <laughs> what the hell <laughs> it never happened and now we know why there's and it just makes me wonder how much more just really great stuff is just missing because Arnold's vision was changed well exactly I mean it, it, it sounds like that she had as far as she knew that she had in filming pretty much total creative control over how she was going to film things and the IndieWire article mentions that, you know, Kelly's uh, soapy scripts featuring many scenes of two characters sitting across the table talking um, were not Arnold's bread and butter, but the director was free to shoot them as she, as she saw fit. So you've got, and I think that that's an interesting conversation then to have about the, the difference in directorial style. Two characters talking across a table, right? That's not inherently exciting. Right? But the way that the director chooses to film those conversations can make it exciting, it can make it interesting, and it definitely changes depending upon what director you're talking about. So that visual style is different. And if you then have one director's work and then another director is coming in and either reshooting it or recutting it and rearranging some of that, or cutting it out entirely, cutting out something like the ice cream throwing scene, right? You're, you're constructing a different story and you're, you're giving a different impression to what the original director did. So it's really disappointing and really upsetting that she would be given so much freedom in being able to shoot the way that she wanted to. Probably with the producers and the writers and everybody standing in the background going like, well, we know that we're going to you know, change all of that. That uh, it, it almost doesn't matter how she films it because we're just going to fix it in post, and that's what's really upsetting about this. And I and you know there's there um, there are sources that are saying that Arnold is really heartbroken over this. Um, it, it's it's an unattractive thing for them to do, and it also again carries a a, a, a different valence when you have a male director. Step a male director and um, a male writer stepping in and being like, okay, now now we're going to thanks for doing the work. Now we're going to make it ours uh, to a female director. So 
it's disappointing. It certainly makes me not really want to watch Big Little Lies, unfortunately. And I was mm-hmm. sort of interested in it up until now. And and Arnold Arnold was actually a major sort of moment. I was like, oh, that's that's a cool idea. Maybe that's something that I would be interested in watching. And now I'm like, no, not really. Not if you're going to screw around like that. Yeah. And that's, I, I totally get where you're coming from because that's where I'm at. It's like, I'm totally invested in the show. I'm hooked, but now I'm not, I don't know what to do. Cause it's like, I feel like I'm complicit if I continue to support it. But at the same time, I am like so drawn into the story. How do I just quit now? I feel like I'm totally stuck. And it's really, it pisses it pisses me off because now you're also toying with the audience. Yeah. You've brought the audience in with one expectation and then you're giving them something else and Mm -hmm. that's not fair either. So it, there's also, and the article doesn't mention this, but I do think that there's an undercurrent here of using her, not just in terms of the shooting, but using her as a name. She's, she's a name female director. This is not an unknown. This is not someone who, particularly in in indie cinema, and particularly in a lot of the people who would watch Big Little Lies and who watch HBO on a regular basis. So having her as a named female director as sort of the face almost of the production and being like, oh, isn't this cool? And then to actually just take away all of that creative control also makes it look like that it, it was almost nothing more than a PR move. Like, oh, we've got a female director, isn't this nice? And But actually, it, it doesn't mean anything. You know, she's, she's being treated as a token. I don't know if that's what they were thinking, but that's certainly what it looks like to me as an outsider. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. really disappointing. Yes, release the Arnold cut. I am willing to I go with it. that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have that replace the whole Snyder cut discussion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, speaking of things, I don't know, speaking of series that maybe shouldn't be watched, <laughs> I'm trying to find a nice transition to this. Peter Farrelly. Uh, I know that you have feelings on this, Karen, so I'm just going to introduce it really quickly and <laughs> let you talk about it because I took one look at it and just went, oh my God, no, leave me alone. Um, so Peter Farrelly is uh, is about to start making a comedy series at Quibi, which is a short-form video platform, um, and it's expanding to a comedy slate with a new series called The Now, which is... I'm just going to read what the synopsis yep. is, because I don't know how else to, to describe this in, an, in a nicer way. Um, the story of a guy who is about to commit suicide when he finds out from his nagging mother that his brother just committed suicide, and his dad committed suicide in the past, too. He can't kill himself because he can't do that to his mom, so he has to learn to live life for today in the now. Uh, so, so what are your feelings about that, Karen? <sighs> Okay, I want to be very clear that there is a difference between saying something can't be made and saying that it shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> because some people earlier this week when I tweeted about this, some people were like, you're, you're favoring censorship. And, and no, I'm not. I'm thinking Peter Farrelly should have the decency to realize this is a bad fucking idea and not do it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Um, my... <clears throat> trying to think how to talk about this because this is some part of part of why I've become very sensitive to this issue is because suicide has touched my life mm. um, 
I've been to four funerals in the last couple of years of people that have committed suicide. This is an epidemic that's on the rise. Um, just this year, one of my very best friends that I've known since middle school, um, she's gone now. And so it, that experience, it doesn't, that experience doesn't make me just like more sensitive to, to it exactly. It just makes me realize how we have portrayed suicide in the media and what's going on. And so when I see a headline that talks about a suicide comedy, it's not, oh, boo-hoo, I miss my friend and I'm so sad and now I'm triggered. No, it's not that. It makes me, because I lost my friend, because I've seen other people lose their parents, it's made me realize, like, this is a conversation that we need to be taking a little more seriously. And you can do that through comedy and humor, sure, but you have to be very careful how you do it. And so when I went beyond the headline and read the article that you just were addressing and I read the synopsis, it made me even more concerned because I don't feel like there, I don't get the sense <laughs> and I couldn't, it couldn't possibly be because of Farrelly's other filmography, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I don't get the sense that he's being sensitive to this really epidemic that we're facing in this country where suicide is on the rise. It's something that is affecting so many people. And it's like, if you're going to tell a story like this and you want to make it a comedy, there needs to be something about it that, that, um, it needs to, it needs to have positive, uh, messaging, positive mm -hmm. influence. And I'm not saying that he, that he won't, but just the way that the show is described. If they don't know a better way to describe it, then, well, he's not going through with it because of his nagging mother. Yeah. I've got issues. I'm sorry. I do. And I just, I see so many of these things, you know, and, and there's a difference between having a, a, a suicide as like kind of the catalyst of a story and seeing how that affects other people. Or even like in the case of, say, Little Miss Sunshine, where that movie opens with Steve Carell's character in the hospital being released after he has made an attempt. And, and his experiences kind of really strongly inform his character and, and some of the things that happen throughout his part of that story. There are ways to do it sensitively and ways to do it that are, that are um, thought-provoking and interesting. But I don't trust Peter Farrelly to do that. And I'm very concerned about this. And I'm very concerned about the way people just jumped on me when I expressed a concern. And we need to stop doing that. <laughs> you know? We need to really take a look at the way that we're, that we're providing entertainment, the way that we're consuming entertainment, and the way that we talk about entertainment. Mm -hmm. I have concerns about all of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I said this online, and I'm going to say it again. I completely agree with you. I, uh, I, and I think that the crux of this story is both, as you're saying, the synopsis and also Peter Farrelly. Um, because, uh, as, as I mentioned on Twitter, and as a lot of people mentioned, uh, you know, th this, is, this is the guy who made, you know, solved racism by making fried chicken jokes. Yeah. Um, and that, his filmography, and I'm, you just look at, any of, of of the films that he has made either by himself or with his brother um there is nothing there that says this is going to be treated in a nuanced and sensitive way and and i agree with you i don't think there's anything wrong with looking at 
I mean, it's difficult to say looking at suicide as comedic because it's not comedic. It's, it's one of the most tragic things that can happen. Um, but, you know, you can approach it from the point of view of comedy. Someone who's that depressed, someone who, who tries to kill themselves, what does that mean? You know, how do we understand that? And I think that you can deal with that in a comedic way. And you can find some humor in it and find some um, sort of catharsis in talking about it. But it has, like you're saying, it has to be done by someone that knows what they're talking about and someone who is capable of that. And I, I absolutely do not believe Peter Farrelly is capable of it. The, the further disturbing thing, I think, about the synopsis to me was that it looked like yet another one of those kind of concepts that suicide is inherently uh, selfish and that he does it not because he doesn't want to kill himself or because he chooses not to kill himself, but because his mom nags him not to. He can't do that to his mom, you know, so he's not going to be selfish. And there's a really disturbing undercurrent to that that completely ignores some of the conversations that we've had publicly about suicide and about the rise of suicide in the United States. Um, and, and particularly about the rise of suicide with men. Uh, men are more likely, like straight men, are more likely to kill themselves now more than ever. And that's something that has been discussed publicly. That is something that has been debated. And it's like, what, what is the nature of the culture that this is... That, that there's so many men that are attempting suicide or actually succeeding in, in killing themselves. Um, that's a conversation that needs to be had, and there's no reason why we can't have that comically but also seriously. But Farrelly isn't going to do it, and, and not based upon a synopsis of this show. And as you say, that's not censorship. That's actually raising concerns about the way that a very sensitive and very important topic is being presented. It's similar in the same way to the way that people were talking about um, Confederacy, the show that the, uh, uh, the Game of Thrones showrunners were going to make about what if the Confederacy won the Civil War. And everyone was like, okay, it's not just that there's a problem with the concept. There's also a problem with the per with the people who are proposing the concept. Right. Other people can possibly make this show. Other people could possibly make it interesting, but not in this format. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you have to consider who, who is the one that's making this art? Um, who is the one that's telling this story? And why? what is their motivation? Yeah. That's my concern. Why does he want to tell this story? Why does Peter Farrelly think a comedy about a guy deciding not to commit suicide? Why does he feel like he's the right person to tell that story? And I mean, maybe it has touched his life. I'm sure for a lot of, I'm sure there are a lot of people that it has been part of their experience, but I just, I still, I, I just, I have a lot of questions, not necessarily wanting answers to them from him, but you know, <laughs> But the other concern I have is one that's it's pretty simple. And this is actually, this story came out just a week after I had raised concerns about Midsummer and the way that that graphically depicts suicide. And there's no warning for it. I had no idea that was coming. And all of a sudden I see this and I'm not someone that is easily triggered by things. And so I wasn't, it's not like it just, you know, it didn't affect me the same way that I know it would affect a lot of other people in my circle. 
you know, to see that without any warning, without knowing that was coming. And so my thing is that I think the MPAA should be putting warnings on that. So having that happen in midsummer and then this article come out this week, I just, it made me very aware that, you know, even though suicide is on the rise and we see all these horrifying statistics, there are still so many people in the media who just don't understand what showing that or talking about it so casually does to people because when someone is suicidal any conversation about it or depiction of it like things that you would never imagine you would consider yourself doing sound start to sound very uh like yeah okay you know it starts to sound like something that isn't horrifying anymore it sounds like a way out and so it's like that's something that we just have to be really careful of so all this stuff just keeps coming up about suicide and i just i just want people to really be mindful of how they're talking about it and how they're they're depicting it and and those conversations that are happening yeah and i think that it's it's interesting that there's so many shows and so many films that are actually dealing with this and it's the kind of thing that has come up in various forms over the course of film and television history. But one of the shows that people immediately went to when they were talking about this Farrelly show was 13 Reasons Why, uh, mm-hmm. which was heavily criticized yeah. for the way that it depicted suicide, for the way that it treated suicidal teens, and and all kinds of other stuff also. But you, you would think that at some point, the powers that be, as it were, would actually interrogate, okay, look at why people are having these kinds of responses to, to this to this particular topic and how, and it's not saying again that you're not allowed to depict suicide, but how are you depicting it? And, and as you're saying, does the MPAA rate films? I mean, the MPAA has reached a point where it's rating films for, you know, teenagers smoking, mm-hmm. but we're not getting a rating as saying like, grab, you know, there's nothing wrong with sticking on Midsummer as part of the, um, as part of the rating depictions of suicide there's no and then a person like you or like me or anyone else can make a choice okay am i okay going into that or is that something that i want to avoid it shouldn't have to solely be by word of mouth and if we're that concerned about how many times you say fuck in a movie or how many times someone lights a cigarette then we really should be concerned about you know if if you're showing someone killing themselves yeah um yeah exactly it's interesting, just as an offshoot of this, uh, and we'll move on, but I last night, for the first time, I watched Heathers, oh. uh, which I knew very little about when I went into it, and then I was watching, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a disturbing movie in 1988. It's a good film, and I think that it has a lot of good stuff in it, but it's a disturbing film in 1988. It is almost impossible in 2019. Um, and it was interesting in watching it just to think about, you know, if you remade this film in 2019, I don't know if you could get away with it. Uh, it might be interesting. It might be an interesting thing to attempt, but Christ. <laughs> well, I think it was Paramount TV attempted to make a TV show about it. They actually have episodes, and I think the first one eventually aired. But yeah, this was turned into a television show this year, and or maybe it was last year, maybe it was 2018, and they actually were supposed to have the premiere and had to pull it because it was the week that Parkland happened. I remember this mm-hmm. now that you're saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, it, this 
this does not work now. We're we're we can't we can't have this as entertainment, you know, in twenty nineteen. I mean and it, it could produce an interesting conversation. It would have to be handled in a really different very way. Very different way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, too. I remember a year or two ago, someone else had discovered Heather's The Movie for the first time with Winona Ryder and Christian Slater and was just so shocked that nobody made a big deal about this in 1988. And I'm like, you really think this wasn't controversial when it came out just because you never heard of it? Like, (laughs) oh, yeah, this movie was a huge deal. I wasn't allowed to see it because of the the themes and stuff i was in junior high my mom would not let me go watch it it wasn't until i was in high school and my friend and i snuck and rented it at blockbuster we got to finally see this movie because it was a big deal it's very controversial and it was back then too i mean it is it is deeply dark and i I was was talking with my parents about and they were like oh 1988 was that like when was columbine and i was like columbine's 1999 i remember Mm -hmm. columbine yeah. Um, and all of that stuff, it's just, it's it's interesting to look at just from a historical perspective. But yeah, I, I was like, wow, you could not get away with this today. Like, I, I don't, and I don't think you should, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, it's also one of those things, I'm glad it exists. And I'm glad that it, they did do it yeah. when they did. Because I think that it does introduce some very interesting things, particularly the way girls treat each other and then the way that they seek refuge from really terrible men sometimes like those kinds of themes I think that leads to some really interesting conversations that have nothing to do with the murders you know yeah absolutely it's uh, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating film I was not prepared for it in the correct way I don't I don't Ooh. think but I I liked it I liked it a lot like I, I was but I was just like holy shit this is not exactly what I expected okay uh changing my mind space <laughs> a little bit and now I'm all right um and somehow even with that movie I had a massive crush on Christian Slater <laughs> oh he's very sexy in that like he's, he's so sexy but so terrifying he's horrible he's horrible <laughs> but but that's part of it I mean you get why she's into him you get why uh-huh. he presents such an attractive alternative Exactly, um, yeah. especially compared with everybody else in that school. Uh-huh. So, so moving on to you know, I mean, talking about things that may not possibly age well, uh, <laughs> Aziz Ansari. Aziz Ansari is going on a comeback tour, and he has a Netflix special out, and some of some of this special, you know, actually addresses these the sexual misconduct allegations. I don't know, I don't know whether we call it sexual assault it kind of is it kind of isn't it's it's a very gray and thorny issue we've talked about Ansari before on this podcast out of all the people that we've discussed as garbage people his is definitely the most gray area I, I would say and and it highlights I think um some of the issues that a, that a lot of people are dealing with right now in uh, in the Me Too era, and what, you know what behavior we consider assault, what be what we simply consider bad behavior, and and how we sort of navigate that. So, I have not watched I'm Sorry is Netflix special. I don't. I didn't like I'm Sorry before the allegations. I really don't like him now. Um, you have. So so what are your you wanted to discuss like what has not aged well and, and whether or not yeah. we can support comebacks like this. Well, yeah. So there are a couple of, couple of separate things that have all come up this week that this actually kind of highlighted for me, but I had not 
intended to watch the special. I never have been a fan of his. And I mean, I think that his situation is one that I don't know if he necessarily should be canceled over it, but I'm not a fan and I'm not going to be now. Um, but my coworker was telling me about some of the things that he brought up in the special and it's only an hour long. So I thought, Oh, what the hell? I'll watch it. So I did. And I mean, to say that he addresses what happened to him is, is very generous, <laughs> I think, because he doesn't, he doesn't come out right and, and say this was the situation and this is what happened, but he does talk about how it affected him and the sense of making him reevaluate how he interacts with people, how he conducts himself, and the fact that he has learned to be very grateful for the things that he has because he has seen now through his own personal experience that it could all be over tomorrow. And, but he doesn't do that in a way where he's ever blaming her. He's not trying to seem like, like he thinks that she did anything wrong in this situation. And in fact, he even says that he felt really terrible for her. And so he's not trying to excuse it. He's not trying to say, oh, this was no big deal or this was blown out of proportion or whatever. He totally contextualizes it to the fact that it has made him become very introspective. And so I appreciated that. And I thought that, you know, I thought that him, him talking about that, and he brings up different aspects of it, different facets of it a couple of times throughout the hour. Um, so for that, it's like, I think in his situation, he's definitely got fans. I mean, those audiences of his are sold out all the time. So, I mean, people still are big fans of his. I think in his case, I think that well, really what I think is that more people, if they're actually sorry for what has happened or what they have done, this is how you apologize for it, is the way that he did in this show, first of all. You, you sit there and say, like, wow, I really did screw up, or I really was terrible in that situation. I am committed to making myself a better person. And he actually talks in, in a couple of different times about how if you're not... If you consider yourself the same person that you were 10 years ago, then you're a shitty person because you're not taking time. Our whole point as we go through life is that we're constantly improving. We're constantly learning and, and doing better. And we shouldn't be the same people that we were 10 years ago because that's not that's not how it's supposed to work. So I appreciated that. Um, sort of a separate topic, I guess. This, this actually, uh, I saw a tweet. A day or two ago about um, Veronica Mars which was a show that was on in 2004 ish it was on for three seasons then it got cancelled because of low viewership uh, came back a few years later as a movie that was crowdsourced through Kickstarter uh, actually a movie that was in theaters and then now there's a new season that Hulu is developing well has developed and it's going to be on in a week or two on Hulu. And so this person that was tweeting was expressing her concern because all of her friends have said, oh, this show has aged really well. And, um, and she went and watched it. She'd never watched it before. And she was horrified by some of the depictions of race and racial politics and racial issues as in the first few episodes of the first season. And she was just like, this show is terrible. And, I got to thinking about that and then putting that in the context of some of the things that Ansari talks about in his Netflix show 
uh, I just thought this would be an interesting topic of conversation because we do, we see this all the time, even shows from just a couple of years ago in the me too era, we see like, Oh wow, that's really problematic. And so what, what, you know, we've talked about this before a few times as far as like classic films, but you know, does this mean that if a show now wouldn't work that we just have to cancel it? We just can't watch it anymore. And that's kind of where I wanted to direct the conversation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that j- just in terms of Ansari, Ansari is an interesting issue because one of the issues that I had with him when all when the um, the sexual misconduct stuff came out was the way that he had presented himself on shows like The Master of None, um, mm-hmm. and and just in general in like his persona as being yeah. the woke dude. Right. The guy, mm-hmm. the guy who's the, the titular nice guy. <laughs> right. Um, and, and he had presented himself very effectively as very sort of, uh, you know, introspective about that. And, and not, you know, the guy who is actually not a nice guy TM, but a nice guy. Uh, and all of that. And then finding out that, you know, he behaves in, in very much the same way that a lot of not nice guys behave. Uh, whether or not that's sexual assault or not, but it's definitely a problematic. And so obviously in his personal life was not fulfilling the promise of his persona, um, which isn't surprising, but is disappointing and does yeah. begin to make you question, okay, how are you presenting yourself? And, and you of all people should have recognized the, the be- your own behavior, but you didn't. Um, and, and rather than actually, you know, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that he's sort of owned up to it and is trying to improve himself and all that. I think that that is important because someone like him is, is, this is very different from an R. Kelly. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So someone like him should strive to be a better person. Hell, R. Kelly should strive to be a better person. Whether or not we ever listen to his music again is an open question, but he should become a better human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone like Ansari, who is actually, actually has the possibility of growth and, uh, and of continuing his career and everything like that. So, so when it, when it comes to then, if you're looking back at his, at his TV show, or if you're looking back on, um, other shows that have had, like you're saying, like Veronica Mars that have had not great representations of certain things, this is where my, um, anti-auteur theory self comes out my death of the author person comes out (laughs) because i do think that you need to read these things first of all within historical context and you cannot apply the same concepts that we're talking about right now to films that were made 50 years ago uh although you can definitely and i think that we should discuss the issues that are present in those shows to say like, okay, this show has a really problematic representation of race. Let's talk about it. And let's talk about the influence that it has had and how we deal with it. And certainly there are some shows that have um, aged worse than others. I, again, talking about shows that I haven't really watched. I have not really watched Veronica Mars, so I can't particularly speak to that, but TV shows like friends, Mm -hmm. um, which have very, very questionable representations of the relationship between men and women with uh, sexuality, with race. I mean, I don't know how these people managed to live in New York and meet like one black person. 
Um, all, all of that stuff. And that, those things have been criticized. Those things were criticized about the show when it was on. Yeah. And they've continued to be criticized about the show and, uh, and have been raised as issues to address. Does that mean that you then ignore the influence that the show has had or the good things that it does? You know, if, if it fucks up race representation, does it, does it do better with gender representation? Um, does it, you know, does it actually succeed as comedy, even though you have these problematic elements to it? And so I, I think that we always need to have a nuanced perspective on things like that. We cannot cancel all past media because it was insufficiently woke. We just can't because that's going to mean canceling the entirety of history. And that does mean that you're ignoring it. You're ignoring the history of cinema. You're ignoring the history of television and you're ignoring the way that these things were represented. And that has its own detrimental effect on the way that we, on the films and TV shows that get produced now and on the way that we approach these issues now. So no, you have to watch those things. If you're going to talk about them, you have to watch them. And you have, even if you wind up not liking it, you still have to discuss it. So right. that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's totally valid to look at a show and say, well, wow, this was really problematic in its representation of women. It was really problematic in the way that they present these racial relations and things. Yeah, it's totally valid to criticize that, but you also have to contextualize it. Yeah. Is this something that was very much in line with other things that are happening at that time and, and other shows? Or is this something that was an outlier that, wow, why did this get to be popular when it was so terrible and didn't match anything else that was coming out in the air, in the era, you know, that kind of thing. And, and sorry even talks about parks and rec, which was just on a couple years ago. And he talks about an episode where his character uh, gives us a teddy bear to Rashida Jones's character, but it has a nanny cam in it. And the way that it plays out in the episode is he's just like, ooh, I get to see in her apartment. But he's saying, he's talking about this in his special, and he's talking about like, whoa, if I got handed that script now, I would say, I can't do this. This is a lawsuit. Like, this <laughs> is bad. This is really, really bad. And... But that doesn't mean that you just don't watch Parks and Rec, because yeah. that happened, you know? And And I think that I think it's important to watch, you know, we've talked about this before with film. It's important to watch those things and it's important to understand the context and understand the history and, and where it falls in history because that part, part of the reason is because that informs where we're going, how we got to where we are, where we're headed and the changes that we have made and the changes that we still need to make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. Um, Okay, so let's let's move on. Let's move on. I don't know if I'm going to ask this question. This is a bizarre question. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to keep on going. Okay, so reviews. I'm going to start out because I really want to say something. I have been watching a bunch of films at Fantasia Fest, some of which I'm apparently not allowed to talk about yet, even though they've been shown at other festivals. But there are definitely a couple of films that are, are going to be showing at Fantasia Fest that you really need to keep an eye out for um, because they're excellent and they're things that we've talked about actually on this podcast before and that Karen and Kristen have insisted that I watch and they were 100% right. <laughs> so the, the review... We kind of know you a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. The review of that particular film will be coming up just as soon as the embargo lifts uh, for Fantasia. Um, two films that I've recently seen and that I can talk about are um, Sadako, which is the uh, which is a new sequel to the Ring franchise. 
Um, it's to the Japanese version of the Ring franchise, make that clear. Uh, and it's actually the return of the original series director, um, Hideo Nakata, who uh, comes back and, and if you remember the story behind The Ring, which changes uh, depending upon which films you're watching, um, but it's, it's, this particular film is, is focused on the wraith, who, um, Sadako, who crawls out of the television set in the original film and is kind of the ghost that haunts uh, all of the different films and curses the videotape and everything. The, I, I liked the film. It is very, it's not as good as the original films. And I think that it fails in actually, one of the elements of the story is that it's about a, um, a YouTube sensation who decides that he is going to investigate the case of a burned out apartment, a fire in an apartment um, where a mother was killed. And of course, as we all know, there, there's plenty of information that this is that this is going to result in some kind of a curse. Um, but one of the issues that I had with it is that that's one strand of the plot, and there's another strand of the plot that deals with uh, the daughter of the woman who was killed um, in the burned out apartment and her being cared for in a mental hospital. And so there are these two strands that never, that do come together, but that don't come together in a way that I think was particularly satisfying. And it completely drops the ball in terms of dealing with, with viral video. The ring as a story is perfectly suited for viral video. It's a great idea, a cursed video in the, in the day of autoplay. Like, that's a fantastic concept, but somehow the, the film doesn't actually address that in, in any, like, deep way. And I think it loses a lot as a result of that. So it's, it's fine if you're a fan of J-Horror, if you're a fan of the Ring Cycle, but, um, or the Ring Trilogy, Trilogy franchise, whatever we're up to now. Um, but I, it, it, was, it was disappointing to me. The other film that I wanted to pimp for... <laughs> is The Deeper You Dig, which is a micro-budgeted horror film that has a very straightforward plot. It is about a, uh, a teenage girl who is accidentally killed on the road by a drunk driver, and he, in a panic, hides her body. And her mother begins looking for her, both in this world and in the next world. So it's it's a pretty standard horror narrative but the cinematography is amazing the performances are amazing it was directed by the three people who also star in it who are a family a mother father and a teenage daughter and for me as someone who is from upstate new york it perfectly captures the existential despair that is upstate New York in February. So uh, I really enjoyed it. It is very worth the time. Uh, it's been compared by myself and by several other people to The Black Coat's Daughter, which is another um, horror film set in upstate New York, and is very much worth your time if you get a chance to see it at Fantasia or if you get a chance to just find it somewhere. I really hope that it gets picked up by, it's perfect for someplace like the, the Shutter streaming service. Uh, to actually, you know, to actually get it an audience because it is it is a micro budgeted film. This is not a this is not going to be a big blockbuster or anything, but it's really worth the time if you can if you can seek it out. It is a very different approach to what is a particularly familiar story. So those are the two that I wanted to pimp for. Karen, totally switching gears. You saw <laughs> the Lion King or the remake I... of the Lion King. Yes, 
the not live action <laughs> Lion King. Um, actually had the opportunity to go to the premiere this week, which was a crazy experience, and I can't believe they actually let me in the door. I kept thinking they're, they're going to kick me out at any minute, right? But for some reason they didn't. But John Favreau introduced the movie. And he actually said everything in it is 100% artistry. It's all done on computers. It's all drawn. It's all painted, uh, except for one shot. But he wouldn't say which one. So, of course, you watch the entire movie trying to guess <laughs> which one is real. And it's, like, impossible to figure out. I is think it, I know, but I'm not sure. Is it post-credit sequence? Like the lions no. appear post something. <laughs> it might be actually. I don't know, but if it's the scene I think it is, it actually happens somewhere in the middle. But um, anyway, here's here's the thing. I think that the Lion King is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It's so gorgeous. Um, the artwork is really spectacular, and what they can do with animation these days is both amazing and also terrifying because it's at the point now where you can basically just make anything look real and nobody's going to know the difference pretty soon um, which that's very scary but uh, as a remake of the original 1994 film I think that there's a lot that this does not do well and that's unfortunate they have so many opportunities to do really great stuff and I think that it just kind of falls a little flat. Um, for one thing, I think a lot of the emotion is missing from this. I uh, they, they do a really nice job of developing that relationship and bond between father and son with Mufasa and Simba. But I didn't think that Scar was nearly as menacing as the Jeremy Irons one is mm. and which was weird to me but but at the same time Chiwetel Ejiofor he does the voice of Scar in this one um, he does do some things where he's just more beguiling so it's like easy to get kind of caught up in in what he's saying and to believe him but it does mean that scenes like the be prepared scene where he's stirring up the hyenas it it ends up falling flat it's not it's not that well done. And that's a great villain song yeah. in the original movie. And in this one, it's just like, eh, it's okay. He doesn't even really sing most of it, which was disappointing. I think most of the lyrics are there, but a lot of them are spoken, which was just weird. And then someone else pointed out, for some reason, I didn't even notice it when I was watching. Maybe I kind of vaguely did, but I didn't really pay attention to it. But someone else pointed out that Can You Feel the Love Tonight starts out during the day. <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, it totally does. That's funny. Um, but let me tell you, Beyonce, biggest stunt casting I've seen probably ever. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no reason for her to be in that movie. They didn't expand Nala enough to make it interesting. Um, they try to do more with the lionesses, but it falls and ends up being, in some ways that I won't give away right now, a little bit more regressive than the original version, which was a little weird. But I also have to say, I'm going to end on something very positive. Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen as Timon and Pumbaa are so fantastic and so funny. I never knew that I needed a sassier Timon because... Wow. <laughs> he just, wow, yeah. He is so great and so just like... 
uh, Kristen, actually, we were talking yesterday, she used the word nihilistic, and I was like, yep, that's the right word. That's exactly... (laughs) A nihilistic meerkat. Okay. Yes. He's so great. Mm. And I seriously, I, I need... I need a Laurel and Hardy type Abbott and Costello type series of movies starring Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen. I never knew I wanted that, but now I do. <laughs> so there you go. The Lion King. It'll be out next week. Um, if you like really pretty movies, this definitely will not disappoint. And I would recommend, I would recommend seeing it for that. But if you are going and hoping that the story is is improved upon at all, it's definitely not. Yeah, everything that you're saying does not surprise me and is yeah. sort of in keeping what I expected. But I'm glad to know that it's a pretty film. That's that's oh, good. So pretty. Yeah, it's it's stunning. It's stunningly beautiful. And but it's funny too because this is another one of those things where you just lose so much on Twitter and and people mm-hmm. just don't. And also people just are not using critical thinking anymore. But uh, my instant reaction the night I saw it was, wow, that is one of the most beautiful films ever made. And people just assumed that that meant I loved the movie. And not one sing- and even in my comments to other people, even in my comments on that, not one single person ever stopped to say, but did you like it? <laughs> <laughs> and I was very deliberate in not saying that I liked it. And nobody noticed. And it's just, that's because we just don't think that way anymore, you know? I, if it's pretty, I must think it's amazing. I admit that when I saw that, that tweet, I was like, oh no, she liked it. <laughs> that was my first, like, and then I, I was like, oh, maybe she didn't. Maybe it's just, like, a really pretty movie. But, but that was, yeah. yeah. Okay. It was a very superficial tweet on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it's very pretty. Very it pretty. is very pretty. And that, I very mean, pretty. there's something to be said for that. I hope, you know, maybe they'll use that kind of technology to, to produce some more interesting original films. Well, you know, and yeah, I was thinking about that. Because afterwards, I, was, I ran into uh, the Disney press rep out here that we work with a lot. And I told him that it was beautiful, but that I spent a lot of the movie just still wondering. Like, I, n- I never saw it answer the question of why it needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, it, it's done because we have this technology and look at how amazing they can make this look now. And I, at first, I, you know, when I walked away from that conversation, I thought, well, that was a really weird answer. And it just felt like a very incomplete answer. But the more I thought about it, the more, you know, I, I came to accept what he was saying. And I think that when you use this technology to retell a story that everyone knows and everyone has, well, a lot of kids now haven't seen it, but you know, us growing up, we we mm-hmm. saw this movie a bunch of times. We know it really well. And so when you see an image like Simba stepping into his father's paw print, that the original image is burned into your brain. You can see like how that looks now compared to the original. And so I think when you use that technology to retell old stories that people are very familiar with, it really does make it very clear how far the technology has come and then like you say i hope that now they will use it now that they've shown us <laughs> this is yeah. what we can do now they'll use that technology to tell original stories well yeah i mean that that's the that's the thing i think that that's the major question about you know why is this needed it's not so much that the technology is awesome and it's awesome that they can make something like this but it would be great to see a story that we don't know that is is new or that is you know a a, an adaptation that disney of a of a fairy tale or of i mean in the case of the lion king a shakespeare play uh Mm -hmm. that they haven't done 
you know, let's have, I don't know, Macbeth with chimpanzees or something like that. Ooh, that could be fun. I think, actually, Macbeth with chimpanzees, I was joking there, but I was like, that would actually be a good movie. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. All right, someone warlike. get me Disney on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, mark that down. Macbeth with chimpanzees. It is yes. not as crazy as it sounds. Money, Disney. <laughs> it actually would make a lot of sense if you know anything about chimpanzees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. On that note... Nice. <laughs> Well, I just also want to throw a quick plug. The Farewell is in limited release this week. It's yes. from A24. It starts stars Aquafina, And it was directed by Lulu Wong, whose previous film was called Posthumous, which was a comedy that I think is available to rent on Prime, but it's not streaming for free anywhere. Um, but I recommend that one, too. But anyway, The Farewell it premiered at Sundance. It's played a few other places. And it's this really lovely family drama with humor in it. Um, about a Chinese family that gets together to say goodbye to grandma, except for that she doesn't know that she has a terminal illness, and which is a very common uh, part of Chinese culture. And it's just a really lovely film, and I highly recommend it. It's going into wider release next week, so if it's playing anywhere near you, uh, check it out, because it's, it's really good. Yes, I, I will. I will back that up as well. It is a really good film, and and it it deserves like it deserves attention. It deserves some good box office. It's gotten great reviews. Um, it would be great to actually see those translate into uh, into audiences. Yes. So yes, go see the farewell. So I think that that's going to close us out. So what do you have on tap for this week, Karen? I am headed to Comic Con. Are you gonna stalk Tom Cruise? <laughs> Well, the, now there are some questions about whether he's actually there or not, Aww. because originally I read that Paramount was doing a whole slate with Terminator and Top Gun, and I freaked out and was like, what? But now they're only talking about Terminator, so I'm not sure. Oh, dear. Well, I, I hope I hope that your dream comes true, whatever whatever that is. Um, and this this week I am still covering Fantasia, so I'm pretty much not seeing anything else, although I might... I might take myself out and either go see Midsummer or Crawl. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing you the way I do, I think you would enjoy Crawl a lot more. <laughs> I see, that's the thing. That's the thing. Um, anyways, yeah, so that's that, that might be what I wind up doing this week, but we'll see. Um, we are off next week because you are at Comic-Con and I get a Saturday off, so that'll be fun. Yay. Um, and, but we will be back the week after. And, of course, you can follow all of our adventures on, uh, on Twitter at CitizenDamePod. You can follow us on Instagram, also at CitizenDamePod. If you are still on Facebook, you have not, like, decided that you hate Mark Zuckerberg now, uh, we are also there on, Facebook, on Facebook.com slash CitizenDame. You can email us if you have questions, concerns, complaints, though we don't, we generally just delete the complaints because we don't care, uh, <laughs> on email at citizendamepod at gmail.com. Of course, our website is uh, citizendamepod.com where you can read my coverage of Fantasia Fest. You can read uh, reviews. Kristen has her review of Midsummer up there. I think she's going to be having some more reviews uh, in the coming week as well. I'm going to write a full review of The Lion King, too. And Karen is going to write a full review of The Lion King. So you can watch for that. You can learn about, like, how much she loves that movie and thinks <laughs> that it's just the greatest film that Disney has ever made. Uh, <laughs> you can also give us some of your money. We love money. Uh, we 
to support the podcast, obviously, uh, on patreon.com slash citizen dame. And you also get stuff if you do that. You get pins and shout outs and some exclusive content. And it's, it's fun. And you also get bragging rights to say that you're supporting a feminist film podcast, which is the most important thing. Um, you can also buy some of our merchandise at zazzle.com slash citizen dame. And if you want to give us just a few bucks without committing yourself to anything, um, go on to our ko-fi. That's ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. We are also on Twitter. Uh, all of us are on Twitter. Kristen is at journeys underscore film. I am at LH business. Karen, where are you? I am at Karen M. Peterson. And so that's going to close us out for today. We will see you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye. <laughs>